You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. So we continue our, our study of Matthew. Jeff got us through chapter 4 last week, and so today we will launch into to chapter 5, maybe one of the most familiar text in, in, this, in this chapter, if not maybe in all of the, in all of the New Testament. Um, you know, as I, as I was preparing for this week, <clears throat> I couldn't help but think of a, a once fairly obscure actress known as Meghan Markle. You know, prior to 2017, unless, unless you were a, a fan of the show Suits, which I wasn't, didn't, didn't really, I don't know if I've ever watched that. I didn't watch an episode until after the fact. Um, but like most of us, you probably never heard of her, right? Um, but all that began to change in 2017 when, when she began dating Prince Harry. And as we all know, on, my, on May 19th, 2018, her, her life drastically changed forever. Upon her marriage to the prince, she was, she was no longer just Meghan Markle, Hollywood actress. She was now Princess Meghan Markle, Duchess of Sussex, granddaughter-in-law of the Queen. And, and since that day, everything about her life has changed. Her citizenship has changed. Her career's changed. She no longer dresses like she used to. She no longer eats like she used to speaks like she used to, sits like she used to. She can't even wear makeup like she used to. Why? Because her identity changed. She was no longer a, a commoner. She was now part of the royal family, and, and um, as such, she was expected to behave in a way that was consistent with being royalty. She was now called to be set apart and distinct. And in our text today, I think Jesus launches his public ministry. This is, this is the, his first sermon out of the chute. And he does it by preaching what is undoubtedly the greatest sermon that has ever and will ever be preached. And his first order of business, the first thing he does is begin by proclaiming, after he proclaims that the kingdom of, of heaven was at hand, he goes on to describe the identity of the people who would be citizens of this kingdom. He doesn't describe his virtues and how why people should. He says, here's the kingdom, and this is what my followers will look like. And I think if you could summarize the identity for these new kingdom citizens in one word, I believe the word you could use would be distinct. And fleshing out what that, what that word looks like and what that, how that fits into this passage will be my task over the next several minutes. So as we do each week, if you're able, please stand for me with me for the reading of God's word. Chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 1 and we're going to read through verse 16. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, 
for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Pray with me. God, as we, uh, as we examine this, this most familiar passage that many of us are, have, have, have studied and been aware of most of our lives, um, God, it's, it's with humility that I, that I endeavor to communicate your heart for this passage to those who stand before me today. But God, would through the frailty of my words, Would you give us a vision for what it looks like to be a distinct people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your possession, so that we may proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Father, would you open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law today? And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so if you're, uh, if you're one of those people who enjoys reading a book or, or watching a movie, where they do the, the, the thing where they start at the end of the story, and then they go back to the beginning to kind of explain how you got to the end, um, you may appreciate my message today. <laughs> And if you happen to hate that kind of storytelling, I'm sorry because, well, that's, that's kind of what we're going to do today. Um, I actually think about that as I, was, as I was even pondering doing it this way. And if, it's kind of funny. I think, it was, I think it was last week that Jeff was talking about um, something about TV shows. And he's like, made, he pr- proudly proclaimed that he never watches This Is Us. Um, you know, that's, that's not, man, he's, that's, men, real men don't watch This Is Us, I guess. Um, I watch This Is Us. And if you have you ever watched This Is Us? Some of you guys know that but actually the last episode they did exactly this, right? They start at the end, they go back to the beginning. And um, so that's what we're going to do today. So I, what I want to do is I want to start, we're going to get back to the beginning, but I want to start in verse 13, where Jesus offers two word pictures to describe his disciples, salt and light. And he doesn't offer these as, as, as two alternative forms of discipleship. He doesn't say the disciples are called either to be the salt of the earth or to be the light of the world. 
But he says, you're called to be both. And he also doesn't present them as things of, of that we're to hope for or that we might become. Notice the present tense. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And therefore, the issue is not if we are salt and light. The issue is what kind of salt and light are we? And the text tells us pretty clearly, it says you're either going to be effectual, influential salt and light, or the other alternative is you are worthless and ineffectual salt and light. That's not a good picture. I think over in, in Luke, it talks about, it talks about the fact that, that it says dirt, soil is good. But if you put bad salt, if you put salt into it, it ruins the dirt. It even says, it's in, in Luke, it says, it says manure is good. But if you douse it with, because manure is, is fertilizer, right? Douse it with a bunch of salt, and it, and it, it, ruins, the, it ruins the manure. <laughs> that's, that's in the Bible. He says, ineffectual. He says, you're, you're not just, if you're either impacting the word positively, or, or you'll mess up manure. What kind of salt are you? So the first question I want to explore, and there's really two, I want, to, I want us to think about, the first things that come to mind is that what is it that salt and light have in common? He puts both, he, may, he creates these, these two pictures, he says we're both, so clearly the two have something in common. And the other question I think about when I, when I read this is, is why these? Why did he choose, why did he choose salt and light? to describe what he, what, this identity that he wants us to understand. And I think the, the shortest answer to the first question of what is it they have in common, and a word is influence. Salt and light are both powerful agents of change. And that is what the core identity of what, what disciples of Christ are called to be. We are called to be powerful agents of change. Looking at salt first, let's examine salt for a second. You know, salt was a, was a very important commodity in the first century. As important as it is now, it was more important then. It was used for lots of different things. First, it was a source of currency. Ironically, people would, many people got paid in salt back then, particularly soldiers. When you hear the phrase, you know, not being worth your salt, that's a phrase that came from, it just referred to bad workers not being worth their wages. That's where that, that's where that phrase came from. Secondly, salt, we, it was also used as a healing agent at this time. We didn't have um, antibiotics and all that kind of stuff. And therefore, you know, we think of we think rubbing salt into a wound. Um, it didn't carry the negative connotation that it does now. People commonly rub salt into the wounds to prevent infections. In fact, one of the first things they would do when, when a baby was born is they would salt it. They would rub it with salt to, so, so that any, any cuts or things, would, there was no infection would get in. And yes, of course it stung. But they tolerated the stinging to prevent the greater pain and harm that would come from infection. And of course, just like today, salt, as then, was used for flavoring. It used to flavor food, and, all, and, it, and, it, and it used to create thirst. 
One of the great attributes of salt is its ability to, to bring out or enhance flavor of food. Food without salt is kind of dull, isn't it? And if anybody here is an athlete, you know that if you've ever, I don't know if anybody takes salt tablets anymore. Uh, typically, you do it more through like Gatorade or things like that, but they're sodium-rich drinks. And what's the purpose? It's to create thirst. It's so you'll stay hydrated. That's the whole purpose of salt tablets or Gatorade or any one of those, those, kind, of, any of those, those kind of drinks. But I think more than anything, salt was valued as a preservative. Now, obviously, refrigeration didn't exist for many centuries to come. So salt was the only viable means of, of preserving food, meat in particular. And I think that, you know, Jesus may have had any one of these uses in mind, or maybe all of them, when he said, you are the salt of the earth. But I kind of think that maybe preservative benefits of salt might have been what he most had in mind. You see, I, I don't think it's a newsflash to anyone that, that we live in a decaying world, correct? Despite all of the, the scientific and technical wonders and, and all of the movements that have come and gone, we live in a modern age filled with many great advances, but the human heart and soul is rotting as quickly and as badly as it ever has. Maybe even more so. It doesn't take any more than a, than a casual glance at your news feed on your phone or on the TV, if anybody watches the news on TV anymore, to remove any doubt of this truth. And yet, what is God's plan? It's to call a people from every tribe and every nation that will actually serve as a preservative agent to impede or slow the rot of sin in humanity and actually forestall God's wrath. And we see a very powerful picture of this in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, don't we? In the book of Genesis, God tells Abraham that all it would require is 50 righteous people for God to preserve the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah from his holy judgment. And what does Adam, Abraham do? <laughs> Against his better judgment, he begins to negotiate with God. He tries to work them down. And he does. He works them down to, to agreeing to not destroy the cities if only 10 righteous people could be found. Two entire cities and 10 righteous people could have preserved and saved them if they had existed. God's desires for his followers then and his desire for his followers now to be salty preservatives in this earth. I mean, isn't that the message of 2 Chronicles? If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and they pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. The hope of our nation, Redeemer, is not our president. And it's not either political party. The hope of our nation is you and I. If our nation is in moral decay, as it surely is, 
then it's not because of a lack of programs or a lack of government help or money. It's for a lack of disciples who are the salt of the earth. So it should make sense then that in order for, to be the salt of the earth, you actually have to intersect with the earth, right? And that's part of our problem. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that, that for salt to preserve meat, the first thing it has to do is get out of the shaker. And the second thing it has to do is get rubbed into the fiber of the meat. Our world is not lacking for salt shakers. It's lacking for the salt to leave the shakers and become ingrained into the fibers of our culture. And this shaker of Redeemer Church still has much room for growth in this area. I mean, I've been, I have been so encouraged, particularly over the last few years, here is more and more people are catching the vision of being real salt and real light in this community and city. I think the city of Tomball is, is starting to really feel our presence. They're feeling the benefit of our love, our care, our prayers. But we can and we must do more. I've learned this town, this town is being inundated with drugs. Tomball, hometown with a heart. It's being inundated with every form of evil that you can find in the worst part of downtown Houston. And Redeemer, it's the job of the people of God, the job of us to get on our knees and to intersect our lives with the broken and the hurting least of these that fill the shadows of, of, of this city. In the same way, there's, there's only one cure for darkness, and that's light. Jesus said, my people are the light of the world. Flashlights are pretty useless in a lit room, aren't they? But boy, do they have tremendous influence when they intersect with darkness. And Redeemer, you and I are the ones that Jesus has called to influence our city our nation, our world. How? By walking out of these doors in the middle of all the sin and all the brokenness around us. We are to be the healing salt in the wounds of the broken, to inhibit the moral decay of our town. We are to be the aroma of Christ, the flavoring that makes, that makes the gospel attractive. We're the ones who are called to push back darkness by reflecting the light of the gospel in every dark corner of our city and world. So the next logical question is, how? You might be thinking, okay, I get that, I, that we're called, clearly we're called to be salt and light. I can't argue with that. But what does that look like? What does that look like in real life? How do we actually be salt and life? How do we actually be a city set on a hill lighting all around us? Well, fortunately, you don't have to depend on my logic or my answer, because Jesus didn't leave us guessing on this. And it's here that we'll now go back to the beginning of our text, where Jesus gives what I think could be summarized as eight distinctives of a disciple of Christ. 
Remember at the beginning, I said, I said, I think that the point of the Sermon on the Mount is primarily to describe the identity of a disciple, which in one word could be described as distinct. But in order to be, in order to influence our world as salt and light, we must be distinct. We have to be set apart. We have to be in the world, but not of the world. The Beatitudes are Jesus laying out how he has called us to be distinct. So as we, as we discuss each Beatitude, I would encourage each of us to use it as a self-auditing tool. Examine your life. Identify what kind of a disciple are you. Think of it as determining how salty you are. How brightly you shine. Since we are called to be reflectors of the true light of the world, maybe you use the phases of the moon to assess how each distinctive applies to you. Are you more like a, a full moon shining brightly? Some shape of a crescent moon? Or a new moon? You can't see it all. To begin, I think let's, let's first examine the word blessed. I think people get, get tied up in the Beatitudes with this word blessed. Because it's too often, I think, the discourse of the Beatitudes can be summarized as eight keys to being happy. And I think, and maybe in some sense, that's not untrue. But I do think we're selling the word far short of its full meaning by reducing it to keys to our earthly happiness. I mean, let's be clear, right? Jesus didn't leave heaven and come to earth so that we could just live happier lives here on earth. He came to reverse the curse. He came to redeem for himself by his death, by his life, by his resurrection of people from every tribe and every nation who follow him and encourage others to follow him. Making disciples who make disciples was the mission of Jesus. And church has got to be ours as well. So as such, I think a richer meaning of the word bless could be to find approval or to be approved of. Disciples are people who are approved of God. Not because of our works or our virtue, but because he, by his great grace and transforming gift of faith, is transforming our character and our identity to conform to his And he, one day after this life, will give us glorified bodies that will be, will be worthy of, of being called sons and daughters of God. You see, the, the Beatitudes perfectly describe both the already and the not yet identity of those chosen to be his people. Now, I think the other thing before we start going through this, the thing to note is that these are not just a random collection there's a very intentional order and progression in the Beatitudes that paints a beautiful picture of God's progressive work of transforming his people into his image. So the first distinctive of disciples that we see in verse 3 is being poor in spirit. That's not a very encouraging start, is it? But you see, when God begins to open the eyes of a spiritually dead person, 
through the supernatural gift of faith, faith, the first thing that happens, and we all know, anyone who's been there, we know this to be true, is you begin to get a grasp of your own spiritual bankruptcy. You start seeing your sin for, for what it is. Your resume of, of good deeds and virtues suddenly isn't worth the paper it's written on. You see, Jesus didn't leave heaven and take on flesh just to offer you a, a personal invitation to his kingdom. And he didn't endure the cross so that you could, he could be some kind of spiritual aflac to fill in the gaps of your, of your personal righteousness. No, he came so that those who don't have two righteous nickels to rub together could one day stand fully approved by God. How? By confessing our sinfulness and accepting his stunning offer of trading our spiritual bankruptcy for the glories of his grace. Of course, the irony of this verse is that the path to inheriting all the riches of the kingdom of heaven is to acknowledge that you're spiritually broke, that you're completely unworthy of God's grace. Scripture says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then when by faith one starts to see their, their helpless state before God, the natural response is mourning. The second distinctive of the disciple is repentance. Those approved by God are not those who celebrate their sins, not the ones who excuse it or deflect it or diminish it or deny it. When you get a glimpse of God's holiness and your sinfulness, your heart is naturally going to be overcome with grief. Grief of the one that you have offended, the holy God. Grief that leads to repentance. Repentance isn't just confessing your guilt. It's not even just saying you're sorry. That's the starting point. But of course, we know that true mourning, true repentance is marked by an intense desire to turn away from your sin as fast as you can. True mourning of sin is always marked by change. Evidence, not just by the turning away from sin, but also the desire to make amends. We're turning. We're making, trying to make desire to make things right. We see this displayed in Luke 19 in the story of the, of the crooked tax collector, Zacchaeus. Yes, that was the, the wee little man, right? Who after encountering Jesus, what were his first words? We see it in Luke 19. He says, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today, salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. That's repentance. What is the benefit of mourning sin or repentance? Well, comfort. Comfort in this life by the knowledge that we are no longer being subject to the penalty of sin, 
or the power of sin. That's comforting, isn't it? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We, the penalty of sin is free, and we have power. We may still give in to sin, but we don't have to. We are free from the power of sin in Christ. And the comfort doesn't stop that there. Because we know that in the kingdom to come, in, in, in the next life, after we, after we die, on the other side of eternity, we will not just be free from the presence of sin and the power of sin. We will be free from the very presence of sin. Get your arm's mind around that for a second. Imagine being free from the very presence of sin. I think it's in C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia says, I think I'm in a place where all things are permissible. That's comforting. The third distinctive of the disciple is humility. See in verse 9, it's humility or meekness. Some translations use it as meekness. Meekness has kind of gotten a bad rap over the years, hasn't it? I mean, most of us, when we think of meekness, the, the image we get in our mind is probably some little timid guy, mousy, no sign of a backbone. That's not meekness. Meekness is acknowledging your own weakness, but putting your trust in something greater. That's what meekness is. It's, it's knowing who you are and then doing something about it. Trusting in something that you know is, is greater than you. That's why scripture describes believers as being what? In Christ. It's not our power. Paul says, in, in my weakness, I, I revel in my weakness because in my weakness, Christ's power is made perfect. It's like, a, it's like being a passenger in a jumbo jet. Instead of relying on your own strength to get somewhere, you submit to a power far greater than you. You know, it's my observation, I think, that the, the greatest stumbling block to faith is a desire for autonomy. We want to be God. We want to be the captains of our ship. We want to be in control. The thoughts of relinquishing our lives to an invisible God flies in the very face of the Darwinian belief and survival of the fittest, doesn't it? But that's what makes us distinct. That's what makes us set apart. We swim upstream from conventional humanistic logic, don't we? That's why Jesus said the gate is wide and the path is easy that leads to destruction. And many are those that find it. But the path is hard and the gate is narrow that leads to life. And few are they who find it. What does the future hold for the humble or meek? It says they will inherit the glorious kingdom, God's glorious kingdom on earth, when he comes to make all things new. Because you see, in that kingdom, Christ and Christ alone will reign supreme. In that kingdom, there will be no room for any mavericks. There will be no lone rangers, no self-made men. Only the humble, only the meek, can inherit this kingdom. And once you've experienced the peace and the power that's found in being in Christ, the natural desire is to experience it in greater and greater degrees. 
And therefore, the fourth distinctive of the disciple is the hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, once you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you want more. You want more and more. And the cravings of the things of the, the pleasures of this world seem to kind of, they kind of fade away. Because just like a snicker bar, it only promises temporary satisfaction, doesn't it? But in Christ, we get eternal, never-ending satisfaction. That's the message that Jesus gave to the Samaritan woman at, at, at Jacob's well in John 4. Where Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that brings us to the halfway point. So if you're auditing yourself, kind of doing an assessment, how are you doing? Are you encouraged at God's work in your life? In moon terms, are, are you waxing towards a fuller and brighter reflection of the light of the world? Are you feeling pretty salty? Or are you feeling a little convicted at maybe how little these distinctives describe you? Well, let's keep going. We've got four more to go. And here we're going to shift now from internal distinctives. All these up to this point has been how God impacted the internal distinctives of the disciple, how God impacts us on the inside. But now we're shifting. The last four are external distinctives. What happens? What flows out of it? And I got to warn you because if the external distinctives, if, I mean, I'm sorry, if the internal distinctives didn't encourage you since they flow out of it, the next four are not going to be any better. If they are encouraged, then get ready because you're, you're going to find more joy. Verse 7, we see the first external distinctive of the disciple is being merciful. The fifth beatitude. Now, Jeff will go over this more in detail in the weeks to come as, you, as we finish, goes, continues into the, into the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus vividly describes what a merciful follower of Christ looks like at the end of Matthew 5. Where we read in verse 38, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you. And don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your enemy and love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's distinct. <laughs> right? That's set apart. Now we're getting that's salt, that's light. Why are we, what, what would motivate us to, to do that? 
We love because he first loved us. Why are we merciful? Because we have been shown tremendous mercy. And we will be shown mercy, as the text says. It goes both ways. Past mercy. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Past mercy. Present mercy. He called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Presently. Future mercy. He will make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. The second distinctive, external distinctive of a disciple is being pure in heart. And this simply means being singularly devoted to Christ and Christ alone. The great commandment is clearly not to love the Lord your God with, with most of your heart, some of your soul, some of your strength, but what? All of it. Every bit of it. Jesus said, you can't have two masters. Split devotion is not devotion. Anyone here who is a husband or wife can say amen, right? If I boasted to my wife that I was devoted to her 364 days every year, trust me, she would not be overwhelmed at my 99.7% faithfulness, would she? And God is not interested in partial devotion either. Scripture says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, what? The love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possession is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. And what is the corresponding future grace for those who are pure in heart? We see God, the one that we are completely, faithfully devoted to, face to face, forever awed at the unimaginable glory of being in the very presence of God for the pure in heart. Distinctive number seven, the third external distinctive is being a peacemaker. A peacemaker. I think this has more than one application. I mean, scripture says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But what does that look like? Again, we'll hear more about this in the weeks to come as we, as we continue in Matthew. But Jesus fleshes out this application just later in this chapter, in verse 23. He says, if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother and sister and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to court. Clearly, we see here that the distinctive is not, it's not don't wait. Peacemakers don't wait for, for people to come to them. What do they do? They go forward. You initiate. And how do you do it? Quickly. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. If you're coming to the altar, leave it there. We'll deal, deal with that later. Go make things right. If you're on your way to court, deal with it before you get there. Peacemakers don't wait. 
And it goes on, we skip to verse 44, it says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Which is exactly what verse 9 says in our text, isn't it? The inheritance of the peacemakers that they will be called what? Sons of God. But I think being a peacemaker means more than just living at peace with all men. I think it also means that we, do we actively engage in the ministry of reconciliation. One of the most primary ways that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world is by being used as tools which God uses to turn enemies of God into friends of God. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Now, this may be a salt sting for some of you, but I have to say it. You can't be the distinct salt of the earth or influential light of the world unless you are actively engaging in the ministry of reconciliation. We are called to lead men to God. I don't know how you can read the Bible any other way. And that brings us to the final and maybe the most challenging distinctive of all. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I don't know which is harder to hear, that, that what makes disciples distinctive is that they will be persecuted, insulted, falsely defamed, or that their response to all of this will be to rejoice and be glad. What I do know is that you show me someone who lives this out, and I will show you a salty disciple. I will show you someone who is reflecting close to full moon brightness. And in case you think it can't mean what it sounds like, here's some more words of Jesus in John 15, starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but, if, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I think in Acts 5 we read such a beautiful and compelling story of what this looks like, of, of rejoicing in the midst of persecution. And we see this lived out when the, when the apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel. 
And they get thrown in jail. They get beaten, thrown in jail. And then what happens? An angel comes in and miraculously sets them free. And you'd think they'd be like, whew. And then they go back to their families. But no, what did they do? They, meet, they went out of the jail and immediately went right back into the center of the town and started preaching again. And of course, it led them to getting arrested again and getting persecuted again. And this is what we read in Acts 5. It, it, it picks it up in verse 17. It says, after they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Wow. Rejoice that they were worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. That's challenging, isn't it? You know, I think there's been, history is filled with, with many, many, many godly saints over the generations who have faithfully lived out, who have reflected the truths of the Sermon on the Mount. But you know, as I was studying, there was you know, one that kind of especially came to my mind was the Scottish Olympian Eric Little. Made famous to our generation through the film Chariots of Fire, if you're old enough to remember Chariots of Fire. Uh, what was that, 1980-something? You see, Eric Little is best known as a devout Christian who, despite persecution from his countrymen, from other athletes, he chose not to compete in his best event in the 1924 Olympics because the race was going to be held on the Sabbath. And then he proceeded to go out on the next race that wasn't held on the Sabbath, and he not just won a gold medal, but he, uh, but he set a world record in a race he didn't even train for. But you see, Eric Little's True legacy isn't what he did on an Olympic track in 1924. His real legacy is what happened in a Japanese internment camp during World War II where he was imprisoned while serving as a missionary in China after the Olympics. You see, back then, right before the war, China was actually in a civil war, which weakened it to where Japan, one of the first things they did was they, beginning of the war, they started to invade China. Started to overtake it, and, and, uh, um, and it became very dangerous. It was a war. It was, it was, it was war. Um, became especially dangerous for anyone who wasn't a citizen, who was a foreigner. Um, they encouraged anyone who wasn't Chinese to get out of the country ASAP. And as such, little for protecting his family, he, he actually sent his wife and his kids back home. But he stayed. God had called him to China. He gave him a heart for the Chinese people. And he said, I have to stay here and minister. And of course, this ultimately led to his capture and his detainment in the prison camp where he would eventually die without ever seeing his family again. But being a prisoner in a war camp, in spite of just unspeakable pain and suffering, it didn't change his commitment to the gospel 
or his love for Jesus. It just changed where and how he ministered. He was affectionately known as Uncle Eric in the camp. He was a brilliant picture of what salt and light looks like as he endured extra persecution. And he did it with rejoicing and gladness. History says that Eric was a mentor to the youth in the camp. He was a preacher and a teacher and a leader to the adults. One of the things that made him distinctive was that he would, he would visibly every day pray for the Japanese captors. And he would encourage his fellow prisoners to do the same, the very people who were tormenting them. Towards the end of his life, he was actually, he was, his, his health was failing. And he was actually, because of his fame, he was given the opportunity to leave the camp and be reunited with his wife and daughters. But he chose to stay. He gave his spot to a pregnant lady who was a part of the camp. David Mitchell, who was one of the children that Eric mentored in the camp, later wrote about him. He said, Eric Little often spoke to us on 1 Corinthians 13 and Matthew 5. These passages from the New Testament clearly portray the secret of his selfless and humble life. Only on rare occasions, when requested, would he speak of his refusal to run on the Sunday and his Olympic record. Not only did Eric Little organize sports and recreation through his time in the internment camp, he also helped many people through teaching and tutoring. He gave special care to the older people, the weak and the ill, to whom the conditions in the camp were very trying. He was always involved in Christian meetings, which were part of the camp. Despite the squalor and the, and the open cesspools, rats, flies, and disease in the crowded camp, life actually took on a very normal routine, though without the faithful and cheerful support of Eric Little, many people would never have been able to manage. He goes on to say, none of us will ever forget this man who was totally committed to putting God first. A man whose humble life combined muscular Christianity with radiant godliness. Oh, that would be said about us, right? What was his secret? He says, he unreservedly committed his life to Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. That friendship meant everything to him. By the flickering light of a peanut oil lamp early each morning, he and a roommate in the men's cramped dormitory would study the Bible and talk to God for hours every day. Someone else once said of Little, says, Eric Little stood out not because he had a different identity from every other believer. He stood out because he had internalized his identity. Eric Little knew who he was. And it set him free, free to run just because he loved it and because God had made him to run. He was free to say no. He was free to step out of the limelight. He was free to suffer, free to give, free to give up his ticket to freedom for a pregnant woman and ultimately free to die. So as I conclude, the question I gotta ask, we've gotta ask ourselves is to what degree have we internalized our identity as a disciple? Are you still a light under a basket? 
Are you still salt sitting safely in the shaker? Are you being distinct in your world? Are you being a person of influence, displaying mercy, devotion, peacemaking to those around you? Are you compelled to go into the dark places of our world, of our city, and share the light of the gospel? Guys, these are tough questions, but we, but we got to ask ourselves. I don't have to convince you that our, that our churches are filled with far too much worthless salt and hidden light. There are countless people who identify as Christians but are far more devoted to blending into the culture than boldly setting themselves apart as agents of hope and healing. And guys, my prayer is that it will not be true of this church. This church will be distinct. The people here will be so compelled by the truth of the gospel and compassion for the lost that we can't help but reflect the brilliance of Jesus into every dark corner and shadow of this city and throughout the world. It's my prayer that this is the ever-increasing identity of this church as long as it exists. Words of Charles Spurgeon. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around them, around about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled to the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Pray with me. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.